As we come to prayer this morning, I'd like to preface our prayer with a couple of verses from Psalm 46, verses that you know well. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Father, we're so grateful for this promise. We thank you for the work that you are doing and that you are almighty and that your purposes will be accomplished and the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. But Father, we know that around the world your church is facing tremendous attack, either overtly or covertly, and we just pray for the men and women who love you and serve you that you will keep them in the power of your strength and your grace. Lord, that they will know your peace, that they will know your, uh, your help each and every day, and that they will continue to stand for what they believe and to stand true to you, no matter what the persecution may be. And Lord, I pray that we in America, where the persecution is relatively mild, if at all, that we will learn how to sympathize with these brethren of ours and to pray for them and to uh, besiege the throne on their behalf. Lord, I pray that you will grant your blessing this day and your strength and your peace. And today that you will be with us, you'll speak to us through your word, that you will rid our mind of all of those things that might change our focus from hearing from you, and that you will fill us with faith and joy and a sense of commitment to you renewed. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, I'd like to read beginning at verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of, men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below beth -car. Last Sunday, we read this passage and we looked at it and uh, we didn't, weren't able to quite finish it. The tragedy of the loss of the Ark of the Covenant to their enemies, the Philistines. And then the deaths of many of the men of Beth Shemesh. You remember we read last week, the Ark had come to Beth Shemesh and uh, they, were, they, they sacrificed, they had a great joyful celebration and then some foolishly decided to look into the ark. And of course, as we well know from passages that we'd read, that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried only a certain way on poles. It was never to be touched. And of course, it stood for the holiness of God. 
And what was exhibited, of course, by these men was not so much a curiosity, but a profaning of, of the holiness of God, no sense of, of who God really was. And as a result, God slew many of them. And so Israel had been brought to its knees before God by these tragedies, all within the course of a single year. And so they came to Samuel, and, and they pled to Samuel to, to uh, beseech God on their behalf. And Samuel said to Israel, Come and meet with me at Mizpah. And in, in a public display of repentance, we will declare our case before the Lord. And so what we read about and read in this passage is a humbling of themselves, a fasting, a praying, and a pouring out of their hearts symbolized by the pouring out of the water on ground. And as a result, they experienced a great revival. And that's what we read about here. So literally, and, and Mizpah is up on the, on the ridge at the top of the Aelon Valley. And so it was literally a mountaintop experience. We talk about mountaintop experiences in our Christian life of the, the time when we met the Lord here and the time when we met the Lord there. Well, these mountaintop experiences are very real to us. It was very real to Israel. They had been restored to a right relationship before God. I think all of us by now are well aware of the character of Satan. Satan does not take that kind of activity lightly. How often have we found it true that when we meet God anew, Satan pulls out all the stops. Satan does everything he can to divert us from our new commitment. He redoubles his effort to destroy our faith. And that, of course, is exactly what we read about in this particular passage. So it would be for Israel. They had no sooner repented of their sin, returned to a right relationship with the Lord in faith. They had received his forgiveness and Satan hit them broadside. Just think in the spiritual realm now. Satan is seeing this happening and he is extremely disturbed. And so he goes to the Philistine leaders and whispers in their spiritual ears, as it were, that the real purpose, the real reason the Israelites have gathered up there is, is not to have a spiritual revival, but to plot a revolt, to plan an attack on the Philistines. You better watch out, they're getting ready to assault you. So the Philistines, Philistine elders, the, the chiefs, the kings of the various cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, apparently thinking, of course, these thoughts were their own, mustered their army. They got their forces together and they invaded Israel. They launched an attack into Israel. They felt that Israel must be vulnerable at this point, and so they launched an attack. And from the heights of Mizpah, looking down from the, from the, uh, the, the Ephraim highlands here, you can look down the Elon Valley all the way to the coastal plain. And Israel probably was able to see, and from the events that are described in the passage, we assume they were able to see the Philistine army beginning to wend its way up the Elon Valley towards Mizpah where they were meeting the Lord. The enemy army could be seen at a distance. And fear was struck into the heart of Israel. The Israelites did not feel that they were prepared to deal with this mighty enemy at this moment in time. But something different happened this time. Something radically different happened this time. Rather than trying to take matters in their own hand, as they had done a year before at Ebenezer and Aphek when they fought the battle and lost the ark, they put themselves 
into the hands of God. They dedicated themselves to the Lord and they asked Samuel to intercede on their behalf. Now think about it for a minute. Had they done this one year before, instead of assuming that, oh, God will be with us, let's just go grab the ark out of Shiloh, out of the tabernacle, and bring it right out here onto the battlefield, and this will shoo away all the enemy. If they had done this, if they had submitted themselves to God, and if they had prayed and, and, and through Eli sought the Lord, how many lives would have been saved? Tens of thousands of lives would have been saved in Israel and in Philistia because the events that we've already read about of the tragedy in Philistia as well as the tragedy of the Battle of Ebenezer would have been avoided. But at Ebenezer, they violated God's word. At Ebenezer, they treated the Ark of the Covenant as if it were a talisman, a fetish. We'll bring it out here and it will shoo away the enemy or cause them to faint before us. And so God did not hear whatever cries they did to issue forth to God. God didn't hear them because they were not praying in faith and acting in obedience. So great disaster befell Israel that day. This time, in accordance with God's word, we see that Samuel went before the Lord and he offered a burnt offering. And he cried out to God on behalf of his people, and God heard and God answered the prayer of Samuel. God always hears the prayers of his people prayed in faith and in obedience. He always hears those prayers. He may answer differently than we may be crying out at the moment, but he hears the prayer. And he does act on behalf of his people. I think all of us can attest to the fact that there are many times in which we have lost our joy because we have not acted in faith and we have not acted in obedience. We have not sought God really trusting that he hears and he's going to act on our behalf, partly because we have sensed that we are not asking in faith and not acting in obedience. Apparently, the men of Israel, although they had gathered for a holy convocation up there at Mizpah, apparently they were armed. Now, Josephus says they weren't armed, but I don't believe that for a minute because they couldn't possibly have pursued the Philistines and slaughtered them all the way down uh, the Aelon Valley had they been unarmed, you know. I'm well, maybe they were good at karate, I don't know, but probably not. I think they were armed up there, and although they weren't looking for a battle, they were prepared and could fight. They didn't want to fight. They didn't have any heart for a fight. They were fearful. It says they were afraid as they saw the Philistines coming up because they had been smashed in a great defeat just one year before at Ebenezer down on the coast. You know, we, we read of the 30,000 that had been slain there and the ark had been lost. And, and so they're still gun shy, as it were, sword shy, maybe I should say, bow and arrow shy uh, at this point. Think about it now. The people at Mizpah, the men at Mizpah, viewed this coming, this army coming up the hill much the same way that Israel viewed the situation as they stood before the Red Sea with Moses, and behind them was the Egyptian army coming to trap them against this body of water. Oh yes, God had led them. Oh yes, Moses said, be still and, and, and see what the Lord will do. But, you know, the enemy was coming and the Red Sea was there. It was very real and the enemy was very real. And so as Israel stood at Mizpah, this attacking Philistine army was very real. 
You know, it's, it's too easy for us sometimes to visualize these things in a Sunday, you know, child in Sunday school idea where, where we don't really put ourselves in the place of these people and stand in their sandals and, and sense the condition uh, of seeing an enemy army that has wrought havoc amongst your people and in your land for years, really, and, and to see them coming in full force and, and, and you knowing that you are not a prepared army, you are not led by any kind of a military commander. There's no Napoleon here to lead you against the enemy. And, and, and to, just, to, to just know there's fear there, there's uncertainty, there's you know, doubt. So we have to understand their situation and know that they're trying to exercise their weak faith. They're trying to bolster one another, but the enemy is moving rapidly and there is to them no obvious obstacle to the enemy. See, that's one of the problems we face in life is that we pray and we trust the Lord in faith, but we don't always see the answer coming before it gets there. We don't say, oh, well, obviously this is what God's going to do. Oh, sure, I, 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 I mean, I'm perfectly calm as a result <laughs> because God doesn't normally act that way. God does not send the cavalry in, you know, to intercede for Israel. God does something far more marvelous than that. What we see here in verse 10 is high drama. Put yourselves in the Philistine sandals now. They're coming up the hill. They have crushed Israel so readily a year before. Israel was routed. They slaughtered 30,000 of them. They captured the ark. And even though they'd been through this tremendous turmoil of the ark being within their land and causing great death, now is their chance for retribution. And I think they come up, came up the Elon Valley full of confidence. We routed them a year ago. We'll rout them again. We will destroy these faint-hearted people. And as they came marching up the valley, Israel silently watched. I don't think there were any cheerleaders back behind the lines trying to rally the Israelites to, to faith and to get ready for battle. I think they watched silently, each man with his own communion with God, considering the situation as it was developing before their eyes. And of course, in the meantime, Samuel was praying and Samuel was making an offering, and Samuel was acting uh, as, as the intercessor on behalf of his people, and God was hearing his prayer. I think the Philistine soldiers fully expected a repeat of the Ebenezer of a year before. They expected to be victorious, and they would have been. If, and that's the big condition, if Israel had not repented and recommitted themselves to God, but that simple, all-important act brought the Almighty into action on behalf of His people. And, and I think we can relate to this as far as even today thinking of the persecuted church around the world. You know, if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will act. I will heal their land. And of course, God knows our land needs healing, but the church around the world needs God's hand, needs God's empowerment. The Philistines are coming. The Philistines are closing in. The church in Indonesia is being, is being uh, slaughtered by the thousands, by the Philistines. And, and it's up to us to intercede on, on their behalf and to think and to know what our role is, to act maybe similarly to, to Samuel in the sense that we step in the gap and we pray that God's people will be defended by God himself. God moved into action. God could have done to the Philistines what he would do several hundred years later to an invading Assyrian army. 
as the Assyrians came towards the city of Jerusalem and they, 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 they uh, railed against the God of Israel and they, and they laughed at the God of Israel and Hezekiah, although he was anything but a mighty stalwart king, was a man who did go before the Lord and ask God what he thought of, of the letter that was sent by Sennacherib saying, I will carry your God off just like I've carried off all the other gods. And God, of course, through Isaiah, responded that not a single arrow of that enemy army will cross the walls of this city. And that night, 185,000 men taken into eternity instantly by the angel of the Lord. God didn't choose to do that with the Philistines here. God could have done that with the Philistines. We don't tell God how to act. We ask him to intercede, and then he chooses to intercede as he chooses he chose to send a great thunderstorm. He chose to use the elements. And I, I would imagine that would have been a thunderstorm to witness. I think the winds were horrendous. I, I think the rain and, and hailstones were probably uh, frightening. And of course, the, the, the noise of the thunder and the lightning and the clashing. And, and we have to understand, I believe personally, that we're not dealing here only with a physical thunderstorm, but with war in the heavenlies, as it were, spiritual warfare here. And the Philistines were on the wrong side, and they were sensing the almighty power of the God of heaven. And they already were gun-shy a little bit about that already, because they'd had the ark in their land, and the ark had been responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of their people. Why did God send a thunderstorm? This thunderstorm disheartened them. This thunderstorm confused them. This thunderstorm literally routed them. They were running before Israel ever came down from Mizpah to join in the, in the fun. I mean, the Philistines were already running the opposite way. Israel did not rout them. God routed the Philistines. Why a thunderstorm? Why didn't God just open the earth up? Be the end of the army, right? Could have. Uh, there's many things God could have done, but why a thunderstorm? Well, I think at least one reason God sent a thunderstorm was because of who was the God of Philistia, was Dagon. And Dagon was, was a God of storm. And he was closely related to the Canaanite God Baal, who was the God of storm. And whenever the great storms came, the Philistines saw Dagon and, and the Canaanites saw the work of Baal or Baal in, in this. And so God was showing to the Philistines that your gods are nothing. I control the elements. I am the Almighty One. God was very convincing. Josephus tells us that earthquakes also accompanied the thunderstorm, and, and that's very possible, although the Scripture does not mention such. Well, Israel now saw the cavalry was here. God's cavalry had come. And the thunderstorm was, was driving the Philistines back down the mountain. And so the Israelites looked at each other and said, what are we waiting for? Now's our chance. And they ran down the mountain right into the storm to pursue the Philistines down the Aelon Valley towards Philistia. They were emboldened to attack. Why? Because God was there. And they knew God was there. Israel rushed down the hill from Mizpah. It's always easier to run downhill than uphill. The Philistines were running downhill also, however. <laughs> they were running pell-mell downhill. They were probably running over each other, trying to get away from the storm that God had sent. And they were rushing back towards Philistia. The Israelites were told in this passage, 
massacred them all the way to Bethkar. Bethkar means house of pasturage, house of meadows. This is the only place in scripture where this town is ever mentioned. We assume it's a town. Maybe it was just a house. Maybe it was just a place. Its location is uncertain, but from the knowledge of the geography of the area and of the, what the scripture says, we assume that Bethkar was a point somewhere, probably just inside of Israel, right at the Philistine line. And as they crossed over the border into their own country, Israel slaughtered them to the very border of their land. If this reminds you of something that happened 300 years before, that's not surprising because we studied this when we looked at the book of Joshua uh, back in the 10th chapter. You may remember that uh, Joshua was fighting a confederation of five Amorite kings, the southern confederacy as he was opening the land under the direction of God. And these kings faced him in the same place, in the same valley, the Aelon Valley. Let me read that passage again to us in the, the 10th chapter of Joshua because there are some similarities in Joshua chapter 10, reading at verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. And you remember the people, people of Gideon, they were they had allied themselves with Israel because they had tricked Joshua into believing they had come from a long distance away and so he had made a treaty with them, the, the, the men of Gibeon and, and their related villages round about. And so there's an alliance here and the and men of Gibeon are saying, come up and help us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Again, reminding you when it says went up from Gilgal, it means up. Gilgal was in the Jordan Valley. And we're talking about the top of the hill country of Ephraim. They had to climb 3,000 feet out of the valley to get up there to do the battle. So they came up. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confronted them before is confounded them before Israel. And he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And it came about as they fled before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord threw large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than who, those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The Elon Valley is adjacent to the Beth Horon Ridge and the Beth Horon Ridge has been a ridge by which Jerusalem has been salt, assaulted many times in history. So this is a very favorite route. And so they were routed down this route, if you will. And so were the Philistines in the time that we are discussing. If we might now turn to 1 Samuel, back to 1 Samuel 7 and read the remaining part of the chapter, beginning at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. 
So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then, he return, then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. There he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Samuel's a very, very wise man. He wants to commemorate this victory. You know, building memorials for victories is a good thing because they remind us of what God has done. I'm, I'm speaking of spiritually here today. It, it's, it's the same true physically. I mean, war memorials are, are usually good. If you've ever been over to uh, Turkey, you know that at the very southern end of the Gallipoli Peninsula, there's this huge monument that's been built by the Turks to signify the fact that they had withstood the attack, the combined attack of the British Empire and the French in World War I in 1915 in the great Gallipoli campaign, and, and that they had not been overwhelmed as the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians and everybody else would be. They had withstood the attack, and they had driven off the British and the French, and so they built this huge memorial to dedicate uh, that purpose. But they've also, since um, Ataturk became uh, prime minister there in uh, Turkey and made Turkey into a secular state. He wanted, of course, Turkey to be viewed more favorably by the West. He also built a fairly large memorial to the Allied men that fell there. And you can go and look at the gravestones there, and you can read Lieutenant so-and-so, uh, you know, of the first uh, new, 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 uh, new Zealand regiment or whatever, uh, New Zealanders, Australians, as well as British and Scots and French who, who've died. And, and all of this has been there as a memorial of this tragic hour in history. So memorials have, have a value. They, they remind us of victories. And so Samuel is building a memorial here as a commemoration for the great victory that Israel won over the Philistines this day. He set up a memorial stone, we're told. And the stone was placed between Mizpah and Shin. Now, Shin means tooth. And, and so it's probably has to do with a cliff or a bare rock sticking up. And, and since the location of Mizpah is a little bit fluid in terms of exactly nailing it down, why it's hard to know which cliff may be referred to. But a stone was set up. And obviously, they, they knew exactly where these locations were at the time that this passage was written. But what we are told is that Samuel gives the rock, the memorial stone, a name. He calls it Ebenezer. Ebenezer? Israel was crushed at Ebenezer just a year before. Israel was routed. They lost the ark at Ebenezer. What are you doing, Samuel? You're calling it Ebenezer. Very wisely so. Because Ebenezer means stone of help. Stone of help. God is our rock. He is our high tower. He is our deliverer, our fortress. And this is implied within this, of course, and it's a stone to symbolize that God was our help. God delivered us. Uh, he is acknowledging that the victory came not because of the might of, of Israel, but because of the might of Yahweh. In effect, he was saying, we have repented and we have returned to God, and thus far has the Lord helped us. Why did he use this name? He used it purposely, knowing that their defeat had been at a place called Ebenezer. And so he names this memorial stone Ebenezer to restore their faith, to restore their confidence, to blot out the negative meaning of the word Ebenezer. Israel had suffered a great defeat at Ebenezer, 
the hands of these very people. They had lost the ark there at Ebenezer, and that was tremendously humiliating. But this new Ebenezer proclaims very loudly two things. The new Ebenezer said, It is by the might of God we have had victory this day. And it also said, says that by His grace and His mercy, He has received us back to Himself in spite of our folly, which was demonstrated at the original Ebenezer. We discover in verse 13, the Philistines were very badly beaten. They were so badly beaten and so convinced of the power of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I mean, this, this convincing had already been happening when the five cities of the Pentapolis were ravaged by the disease as a result of the ark's presence. So they already were gun-shy uh, to some extent about Yahweh, but now they're fully convinced that the God of Israel is much too powerful for their God, Dagon. And so the scripture says, they never again invaded Israel during the reign or the judgeship of Samuel. The hand of the Lord was against them, and they clearly saw that. They weren't stupid. And the hand of God reminded them that Dagon, their great God, was absolutely powerless vis-a-vis Yahweh. And therefore, they knew that any attack upon Israel would be absolute folly. In addition to peace with the Philistines, we discover from this passage that Israel regained some towns that they had lost to the Philistines probably after their defeat at Ebenezer. The Philistines had used that horrendous crushing of Israel as an opportunity to, to kind of clip off some of the border area of Israel and add it to Philistia. You know, Philistia was a pretty small state. Uh, those of you who have studied the maps and, and you're looking at the current situation over there and you're saying, Let's see, the new Palestinian state consists of Gaza and the West Bank. Well, if you look at Israel all by itself, Israel is a very, very tiny country. The whole country of Israel is only about twice the size of Shasta County. You put Israel into San Bernardino County two and a half times. And now you take out Gaza and you take out the West Bank. They're pretty tiny areas. Philistia was pretty small. Philistia is a little bit more than current Gaza. It went up to a little bit north of where Tel Aviv is and over up against the Shephelah, the hill country there. But we're still talking about an area that probably wasn't more than a couple thousand square miles. That's a pretty tiny country. Most of you are aware of the fact that there's a state in the Near East today called Lebanon. Well, Lebanon is half the size of Israel, and yet it has a significant population so that the population density in Lebanon is a thousand persons per square mile. That's the most densely populated state in the whole Near East. 1,000 persons per square mile. <laughs> California is roughly 200. So it's, it's a densest populated area. The Philistines were feeling a little bit crowded too. They, 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 they were looking for Lebensraum, to use Hitler's term, you know, living space. We wanted more room. And uh, certainly they'd clipped off some territory from Israel uh, in order to have that, um, that living space. The border that ran from, from uh, Ekron to Gath was right up against the Israelite uh, hill country there. And so they, they probably uh, it absorbed towns like Azekah and Timnah. The towns aren't listed, but these would be the logical ones the closest to the borderline that's mentioned there. Azekah and Timnah, and probably some other towns in that area. Israel recovered them. Israel simply took them back, and the Philistines didn't do anything about it. The Philistines were gun-shy, just like you remember back I, I know you wouldn't remember from living through the time period so much as thinking back through the pages of history, 
when Hitler demanded the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia, Chamberlain of England and Deladier of France both said, okay, we'll, we'll give it to you. It's called the policy of appeasement. We'll give it to you because you've promised you don't want any other land. And I think the Philistines, because they were as fearful of war as were the British and the French at that time of war, allowed Israel to take back whatever land um, they had taken from Israel without a, without a fight. Also witnessing the power of Yahweh that day and the crushing defeat handed to the Philistines were the Amorites, the, the Canaanites, who lived still in the land. And the scripture says they also sought peace with Israel. Isn't that interesting? They hadn't been in the fight, but they thought, okay, <laughs> Philistines are a mighty people, much stronger than we are. Israel has screamed them. I think we better have peace <laughs> for our own well-being. From verse 15, we discover that now Samuel is fully recognized as Shofat, as judge, and that he served in this capacity to the day of his death. As we're going to be seeing, of course, he will anoint Israel's first king. He will anoint Israel's second king. And yet he will serve as judge in Israel to the day of his death. As Shofat, as judge, we're told that he was a circuit-riding judge, kind of a Judge Roy Bean kind of guy maybe, or something of that. And hopefully not like that man. But uh, he traveled in a circuit. And he uh, rode or walked between his home in Ramah in the highlands and the towns of Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. Now, depending on which order he took them, and I don't think the order in Scripture necessarily dictates that he always went to the towns in that order, just listing the towns to which he went. We don't know what the order was. The most logical thing would have been for him to go from Ramah down to Gilgal, then up from Gilgal back to Bethel and kind of complete the circuit that way. Well, depending on which route he took, this is a 40 to 50 mile circuit that he went on, apparently once a year. Now, Gilgal is about 18 miles east by road, not by air, by road, about 18 miles east of Ramah. And it's down in the Jordan Valley. The other two towns actually were just north of Ramah in the highlands, not terribly far away from Ramah. In fact, Bethel was only about five miles and Mizpah was even closer. So we're not talking about huge distances there. The only long distance journey was down to Gilgal. Now, if the Galgal referred to here is the Gilgal we most know about, which is the Gilgal down near the, the site of, uh, of Jericho, which most believe that it is. Um, not, not, there was also a Gilgal north of Bethel, between Bethel and Shiloh. But that seems to have been a relatively minor town and probably is not the town being referred to here. So there's logic in going from Ramah down to Gilgal. Because as I mentioned to you before, to go from Ramah down to Gilgal, you have to descend about 3,000 feet down into the Jordan Valley. Remembering the whole Jordan Valley is below sea level. Even the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. So way up in the north, you're still below sea level. And the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level and you're near the Dead Sea. So you're probably 900 feet below sea level there at Gilgal. So going down there made sense for one man to make the journey down there and to take care of all of the issues that need to be taken care of and then to come back up then for all of those people down there and probably from the Transjordan area who came to meet with Samuel to come marching up the hill uh, to the top of the ridge to try to uh, have Samuel sit in judgment of them. But why? 
Bethel and why Mizpah is, is a question. Because Ramah is very close to those two towns, so why did he go to those towns? It could be easy, easy for those people to go to Ramah. Well, we don't know. Scripture doesn't say. We are just simply told that he made this circuit in ministering to the people as judge. What do we discover? What do we discover that Samuel does not do? Samuel does not travel up into Galilee. Samuel does not travel down in Judah. Samuel does not go down into the Negev to Beersheba. He is, this little circuit is right in the middle of the country. Like I said, maybe a 40 mile, 50 mile total circuit, distance east-west at the max, 20 miles, north-south, the max, maybe five, six miles. What about the north of the country? What about the south of the country? Well, what this helps us to understand is the localized nature of this judgeship. It was more of a regional office rather than a national office. And I think this will help us to understand why Israel will very soon ask of Samuel to anoint them a king who will be king over the whole country. Someone whose authority will not just be felt in the area of one or two tribes, but from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, the traditional parameters of Israel. Since the altar in Shiloh had been either destroyed or removed and not yet reestablished in any particular place, Samuel, since he was both shofat and priest in Israel, built an altar in his hometown where he made sacrifices on behalf of his people. The scripture is absolutely silent as to whether God told Samuel to do this or not. But we know that it was acceptable to God because God accepts the sacrifice which Samuel made there on that altar and therefore it was sanctioned and accepted by God. Well, it's time for us to take a few moments to pray, so we'll pick up with the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel next week as we begin to look at the call for a king in Israel and the anointing of Israel's first king, Saul.